evil is evil, more evil than we can sort of get any grasp of. Learn the lesson that John had to learn in Revelation 17 and in verse 6, where he says, I saw, they just been getting a tour of heaven, a tour, I should say, of Babylon, not of heaven. And he gets to the end of it. He says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered with great amazement. You know, he said, I've just been given a tour of how evil evil is. And he says, frankly, I'm flabbergasted. I had no idea things were as bad or could be as bad as that. Now, that's a lesson, because we're a bit like John. We can't really grasp how evil evil is, how evil evil can become, and how the evil of what the evil things that evil will do. They're almost beyond our understanding. Now... In one sense, that's a, a good thing, you know, because R- Romans tells us to be, it says, wise as to that which is good. You know, know all about that which is good. But it says to be simple, or, you know, it says to be innocent about that which is evil. Now, that is actually a very good thing, a very good thing. If you read the message to the church at Thyatira, there's a, the Lord says, and to the rest of you who have not known the depths of evil... It's a good thing. There's hope for you, he said. I've got a message for you. And there's a lesson to learn here. You don't need to know all about evil. Because there is a lie being perpetrated in our society today, and it's coming to the church, and it's coming to the Christian schools, that somehow knowledge is power. All right? Knowledge is power, because that way you can deal with an issue. Well, all I can say is this. The Bible doesn't quite put it that way. There's some truth in it, but it's not a complete and absolute truth. Because the fact is, when Adam and Eve got the knowledge of good and evil, they never got power. They were absolutely disempowered. And the very notion now that, even in the school system, that we must teach our children certain things, we must give them certain information... Because when they meet these evils, you see, what will happen then is they'll have the power to understand them and to overcome them. That's a lie of the devil and it's a lie of Babylon. When Adam and Eve got the knowledge of certain things, physical and moral, what happened? They were ashamed that they were naked. And that knowledge and sin and the fall focused on that area of life and corrupted it. And it did not empower them from then on They've been the slaves of sin and completely disempowered. So it's a good thing in one sense just not to know how bad things really are. I mean, the angel said to John, he said, well, why are you wondering? You know, what did you expect to see? When evil breaks loose, when it's unrestrained, when Satan is served and bowed down to, when a world gives itself over to indulgence, to rebellion against God, to the raising of itself up to serve itself, what do you expect? The whole theme comes from the bottomless pit. And you can imagine how evil you evil might be, but you've never reached the bottom. You know, you've gone down so low and you might go to another layer and as life goes by, you, you 
you discover things are worse and worse, but rest assured, there's, there's plenty of depths you've never plumbed. That's what the angel's saying to John. Don't be surprised. So in one thing, good, in one way, not to know evil is a good thing. And don't corrupt your children's mind too quickly. Because you're putting in the people's minds what they don't need to know about, and you can live a lot more purely when it's not in your brain. Now I tell you, there's no older person here that doesn't regret things they've seen or heard or where they've been because they couldn't get the images and the ideas out of their minds for years. Now you know that's true. It defiles you. So that's one point. On the other hand, not to have some understanding of evil can be a little bit of a problem because you can become naive. Now there's a balance here, isn't there? There's wisdom. You know, because, well, you think of like the Jews in the days of the Holocaust, for instance in Poland, where they were being told what the Nazis were going to do to them. I mean, many of them couldn't believe it. They wouldn't do that to us. We're noble citizens. We're contributing to society. They couldn't be that bad. And many of them, when they had opportunity to flee, never fled because they couldn't grasp just how evil, evil is. You know, working really a bit with the ACL, you rub shoulders and you discover just how bad things have become in our world today. You discover that and it comes as a shock to you. And you sometimes you try to tell people that, but they, uh, well, they say, oh, yeah, yes, yes, you're quite right, you're quite right. But they actually don't quite grasp what you're saying. You know, black lives matter. Well, that's, that's a good movement. Let's face it, none of us want to be racist. We shouldn't be putting down the coloured people and preferencing the white people. Black lives matter. It looks, well, it doesn't look too bad, does it? And yet behind it is one of the most sinister forces that Satan is using in our present world. It's Marxism, it's evil, it's devilish, it's diabolical. But on the front, it sounds sort of all right. And so many Christians in naivety, imagining that the world and people are as nice as the Christian is. You see, no understanding of how evil is. So evil. And as the angel said to John, well, don't be surprised, because I'm surprised that you are surprised. The world... As Babylon and its driving forces are a lot darker than we think they are. Satan, his host, the bottomless pit, the darkness of darkness. That is what rules in this world. I want that lesson number one underscored. Number two, it's more widespread. You don't get little bits that are good and little bits that are bad. You see, the, the characteristics like leaven, it's gone right through the whole lump. And you, you're dealing with a society that is godless, where political, financial, commercial, industrial, academic, whatever you are, the evil is infiltrated everywhere. And we're starting now to see the movement as we're getting towards the time of the coming of the Lord. We're getting to see it popping up everywhere, places where you never, ever expected it. It's not just sort of growing up as a little seed. It is already well and truly entrenched. And it's the roots are down deep into the powers of darkness. And there's a society arising with us now, saturated with sin. What you and I do is saturate ourselves with the word of God. Three, understand the great call, which you have in chapter 18, verse 4. And the chapter is the voice that says, Come out of her, my people. Come out of her. Be not partakers of her sins. If you and I dwell in Babylon in our thinking or in our pleasures 
or in whatever aspect of it, with no understanding of where we're living, we'll end up being tainted by it, defiled by it. You get to the point where it will spoil you in your usefulness for God. You will discover your thinking like the world thinks. You hold the values that the world holds. And you young people growing up, you're growing up in a schooling of society that is moulding you to think like Babylon. Like they took Daniel and they said, look, we'll, we'll school him in all the arts of the Babylonians. We'll, we'll teach him how to deport himself socially. We'll show him the values and the standards of a society that we have that is so great. We will inculcate into his mind all the learning of the Babylonians. We'll feed him on the same kind of food till he is made to be like one of us. Now that's what's going on. That is the whole point. You come out because unconsciously it will it will start to defile you first you know don't know if you understand the world def- the word defilement defilement is it sort of smirches you it makes you dirty it's not that you wanted to be it's not that you went and you know plunged your hands into the mud and said i've got dirty hands but just by being there just by letting its atmosphere surround you constantly and just moving in places where evil is rising like a flood, you'll find it'll leave you with a bit of a a stain on you and it can spoil you. It'll just blur you in your communion with God, in your prayer life, in your Bible life and then it'll start to blur your vision a bit and it's all a little bit unconscious and you didn't sort of mean it to happen. You've been defiled by it, see? The best illustration I had for defilement, I learnt it myself actually when I was 21. I can remember going to the city of Glasgow and in Glasgow it was the days when it was pretty smoggy, pretty dirty, pretty smutty. And I put on a white shirt for the day, <laughs> long sleeve white shirt. And I went out to wander around the town and I ended up in the place called the Gorbals. If you've ever been to Glasgow, and the Gorbals in those days were the slums. And I followed the rag and bone men around. It was so interesting just to see how everybody lived. We're going back quite a number of years. When I got home and took the shirt off, I couldn't believe it. My collar, you'd sworn I'd worn the thing for a week. It was so besmirched and greyish and dirty. Under the cuffs was filthy and it was just horrible. And I thought, hold the thing. I thought, well, I thought I'd get a few days wear out of this. But, you know, it's over. What's happened? Well, I've been out into an atmosphere where there was smut and it had dirtied my shirt. I didn't do it deliberately. But the consequence of walking around in that atmosphere impacted on me. Now, you see, that's what goes on today. Moving in the society we move in, it will impact on you. And you find yourself thinking like they think. Having the same standards or the same goals or the same ideals as they have got. And that is why Paul writes and he says, don't be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've got to learn to think differently and not take on the thinking of the world. Because as we are bombarded on every hand, and every social media, every kind of media you can ever think of, it's all to make you think certain things matter that matter to them. And certain things do not matter that actually matter to the Christian. And it's trying to press you into its mould. That's the idea of being conformed. The word means to press into a mould. And if you can't quite grasp the significance of that, Think about making a jelly in a mould, right? 
The children love jellies on the table, all with a special shape. Now you get that jelly and you start to change its shape. You push it, push it. You say, oh yes, it was beautifully round. Now I've got it oval. Ha ha. Take your hands away. Back it goes to its shape again. See, it's been conformed to a mould. And that's exactly what happens when you get into that thinking of the world. It presses you into their mould. You are defiled and you are becoming, without realising, a partaker of a sins, and your usefulness for God is getting spoiled. Now look, this is more difficult than we realise to put into practice. It happens to us all, all the time. And you've got to just read God's word, it washes you. The washing of water by the word. Quietly learn to read the scriptures and think. Pray, read, think, pray. And if you're not getting anywhere, read it out loud. It helps the devil go away. He doesn't like the word of God. And read and think and pray. And that helps you to get your mind set on the right focus in the right railway lines. You get the right principles and standards and you start to look at things through the eyes of God, through the eyes of the Word of God, you see, and you're coming out and you're not being defiled. So, brethren and sisters, get those lessons. Evil is more evil than we think. Evil is more widespread and intertwined than we realise. Come out of her, my people, and don't be looking at Babylon and its filth. But look for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That was the last cry, wasn't it? Abraham, he left it behind. He was born, he lived in the south, southern part of Babylon. And God called Abraham out, gave him a vision, vision of the city of God. I woke this morning with that Psalm 85 on my mind. Glorious things are spoken of thee. O city of God, Selah. Let's be building for that eternal city. Let's not be building where the rust spoils and the moth gets in and the things which will just be burnt up in the final day. Our treasure is in heaven. Now that's the message, the lesson, the positives as it were, the blessings you can get from understanding the meaning of Babylon. Now we come to chapter 19. And it's a remarkable chapter. We've touched little bits of it this morning. Because what you're doing in chapter 19 is you're looking at heaven's response to judgment and the judgments of Babylon, judgments that are going on on an evil world. Verse 20 of chapter 18 says, Rejoice over her, thou heavens, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. You're going to read in chapter 19 of heaven's rejoicing. You're going to see heaven rejoicing in the ascendancy of God. Beautiful. You're going to see the amazing thing in chapter 19 of heaven rejoicing over judgment. Heaven rejoicing that judgment has finally come. And by the time you get down to verse 10 or verse 7 even, you're going to find the people of heaven rejoicing because the marriage of the Lamb has come. Beautiful, isn't it? Beautiful scene, chapter of rejoicing. Yet, there's judgment. There's something like this. It's a chapter that is, it's glorious when you read it, and we'll just read it and just see that. It's glorious, and yet it's, it's terrible. God is wonderful, yet God is 
fearful. You see, he's fearful in his holiness and terrible in his judgments. As Job says, he said, with God is terrible majesty. See that? Terrible majesty. Not glorious majesty. With God is terrible majesty. It seems almost like a contradiction. And when Joel wrote, he wrote of that coming time when he spoke of the great but the terrible day of the Lord. Now, you've been reading through 1870. You read through these parts of the scripture. You get into chapter 19, you start to understand there's something that's great and there is something that's absolutely terrible. Now, with this sort of in our minds, all right, we move on and let's read it. And I want you to create a picture in your mind as we read because you'll understand it better. This is a picture book. This is communication by pictures, giving us pictures to give us principles and truths. So get the picture in your mind as we read it. After these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, praise God, salvation and glory and honour and power unto the Lord our God, For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great war which did corrupt the earth with her fornication. And hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Hallelujah. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. See that in the background of the picture. The smoke rising up forever and ever. Now verse 4. Another movement. The four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat upon the throne. And they said, Amen. Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both great and small. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the voice of many waters, as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. There's your picture. Have you got it in your mind now? big picture let's put the throne at the center of it but of course elevated and slightly above the center of the picture that's number one and then immediately around the throne there's the four living creatures and the four and twenty elders we paint them into our picture and we're we're certainly elevated but then we start putting people in the picture and you start with the top half the multitude that's in heaven And you put them by their thousands, by their thousands, by indeed their millions. And you fill the top half of your picture all around the throne with a countless multitude on high that tune their voice to Israel, to tune their voice to Jesus' praise. That's what you do with the top half. Then you come, there's the throne, and then you come down below and this tremendous multitude of the servants of the Lord and all them that fear him. You fill your picture now with 
people upon people upon people upon people upon people. You've got the countless multitude on high. You've got the redeemed in heaven. You've got this massive multitude of the redeemed on earth. And then you stop. You say, now listen to their praise. And you'll hear the greatest hallelujah chorus that you have ever conceived of in the whole of your life. And we won't realize it until that grand burst of praise in eternity. Surrounding the throne, the angels will burst forth. And throughout the heavens, the redeemed will break forth. And throughout the whole of the whole, every voice will break forth in honor of God and of the Lamb who sits upon the throne. Now, some of you last night, and I thought of you last night, you were singing the Hallelujah Chorus in town, weren't you? Well, do you think you sung as well as that? Eh? Just a warm-up, wasn't it, for, the, for that grand day that lies ahead when we say, Hallelujah for the Lord God, omnipotent reigneth. Now, keep it again. It is like a mighty oratorio, this, this section of the chapter, this section of the book. It's like a mighty oratorio. You've really got sort of one, two, three choirs, and you've sort of got a, a choir master in the middle. Directing all affairs. The opening bars come, verses 1 to 3. The multitude in heaven, they say, Alleluia, salvation and glory, so forth. And then you go down to verse 4. And the four and twenty elders, after this great multitude in heaven have had their praise, as it were, there's a smaller choir. But oh, I wonder how those angels can sing. And you hear, as it were, the beauty of the fineness of angelic voices coming in and falling down. They go further. They don't just come in and stand, as it were, and say or sing. They actually fall down in total agreement and they join. And you listen to that part of the movement of the grand oratorio as the residents of heaven break out in praise of the throne and of the one who sits upon that throne, the one that they guard and the one that they honour and the place of his name. There it is. And then that dies away, doesn't it? Dies away in verse 4. And the choir master speaks up. The voice comes out. And the choir master says, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him. You know what that means? Say hallelujah. That's what they, that's, you, know, you can hear that, that beautiful choir just dying down in the voice. Say hallelujah comes out of the very throne itself. There's a command in that. There's authority in that. There's something regal in that. And the response is absolutely wonderful because the whole multitude then join into a mighty outburst and the whole performance comes with tremendous power like a, the sound of many waters. It's like standing right next to the Niagara Falls and the rushing roar of noise. And what do they do? The wonderful, wonderful cry, Hallelujah, praise our God. Hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. You say, wow, and you sit there stunned and awed as, the, as it were the final notes are dying away of this tremendous outburst of praise from this grand and glorious choir of souls who have been redeemed and know the secret of the throne and of the Lamb which sits upon it. And you think the performance is over. It's not over. This is a beautiful thing here. The performance isn't over. The voice comes again. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife has made herself ready. This wonderful climax 
the climactic announcement of the fact that now that evil has been put down, true blessing in its fullness can come to the redeemed of the Lord. There was no sin to hinder, no Satan to trouble, no Babylon to corrupt. There is nothing but the purity of the presence of God, of the glory of God. And now we can actually realize fully the intimacy of what it means to be married to the Lord, to be joined to him, to belong to him, to actually see him face to face and to know even as we are known. We need to pause a while, don't you? Did you hear the choir sing, hey? Did you hear the voice command, hey? Did you hear the blessing announced, hey? And we're all going to be there one day, every one of us is saved, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, please God, nobody here will miss out on the grand, grand occasion of the greatest wedding that ever has taken place in the whole of history. When sinners saved by marvellous grace, washed in the blood of the Lamb, will be brought to the embrace of their Saviour and to know him in a way that we couldn't possibly know him while we're down here on earth below. This is the finality of blessing. This is us being carried into the fullness of the joy of heaven and our heavenly home. This is the marriage supper of the Lamb where the celebration begins. And after the marriage supper is the fullness of enjoying what it means to be married. When we meet him, it will be the festal feast of marriage. But after that, it will be the joy of dwelling. That is why the church is referred to as a bride at the wedding feast. That's the meeting and the consummation and the finality of our redemption. But the bride is also referred to as a city because it's a dwelling place for every one of us who are saved. Come and I will show you, says the angel, the bride, the lamb's wife, later on. And he carried me away in the spirit and he showed me the holy city, the new Jerusalem. He said he didn't take me back to the wedding feast, you see, and show me the bride adorned for her husband. He showed me the holy city, the new Jerusalem, because there's that beautiful nuptial joy of meeting and greeting and belonging and finally being joined to in its fullness. And then there is everything that happens after that, and that's the holy city, the new Jerusalem. That's the city of God. Glorious things are spoken of thee. O city of God, says the psalmist. Selah. Stop there. Pause. And just think a while. That's where we are. In Revelation chapter 19. You've seen the choir? Right? You've heard, you've heard the choir master speak and command? Yes, yes. You're getting the grasp of the fact that we're heading out there to the marriage supper? And you know that beyond the marriage supper lies the heavenly city. Now look at these hallelujahs. Just look at them. And get the, the themes that are running through them. Number one... It is the theme of the exaltation of Christ. Of course it is. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. All prophecies meant to glorify the Lord Jesus. And the first theme in the praise, the major theme running through it, is the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For you're going to give him honour, you're going to give him power, you're going to grant, grant to him glory. The second theme that's running through is actually praising God for what? The judgment of God. The judgment of God. You're saying hallelujah 
because of the judgment of God. The third theme which we've just touched in the marriage supper is the blessing of God's people. Now this is the most wonderful thing. Once evil is gone, right? Once it's really, really gone, never to rise again. And remember, a smoke goes up forever and ever. She'll never get a flame in her again. Oh, she won't. It's all over. That has to happen. Evil must go before full blessing can flow. Has to be. As long as there's evil around, lurking, it will always spoil. It will hinder God moving in his own fullness at rest to dwell with men. That's the heavenly city. The dwelling place of God is with men. The tabernacle of God is with men. And he shall dwell with them. I mean, God walked with Adam before sin in the cool of the day, in the beauty of the Garden of Eden. He visited him and walked with him and talked with him. But in that glorious day that lies ahead, in that beautiful city of God, he will dwell, he will live, he will reside. He will be at rest among his his creatures who have been redeemed by blood and transformed into the image of Christ. And he will dwell with them forever and ever. And they will dwell with him forever and forever. And nothing will ever disturb it again. Not even our own inadequacies will hinder us from grasping the beauties of it all and enjoying the fullness of it all. And sin will never raise its head so that God is hindered from moving out and displaying himself in absolute perfection. He will be God over all, blessed forever. He will rest it with his people. He will joy over his people with singing. And in the day of his power, his people will be willing and will be glad to sit down in the presence of the Lord and to enjoy the city of God. The city of God, the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The city that Abraham looked for when he turned his back on Babylon. The place where he wanted to be and wished to be and wanted to stay and there to dwell. Fellow Christians, he wandered through the land of promise, never owning it. We'll wander, not wander, we'll be sent on a grand tour of heaven by the hand of the Lamb himself. Not to say it's not ours, but to say, blessed be God, this is my home. It's the home of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, in my father's house there are many mansions. If, I were not, if it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. I would have told you, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm taking you to my home where I live. And in that place, that home, there's a place for you. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Come on, let's look ahead. Let's brighten up the sky. Let's realise our hope. Not Babylon and all its sordid pictures. Not all its discouragements, its hopelessness, its despair, its burdens. No, we're going to a land that's fairer than day. And we're looking for a country that hands is not piled. We're panting for a city by sin undefiled. The holy city, the new Jerusalem. We're building up in chapter 19 to the glories of chapter 21. That's what we're doing in the fullness of blessing that, that finally crowns the entire book. So you've got it. You've got the picture. Right? And you've heard the performance, and you're getting a grasp of their themes. And before we do them in detail and go through just the meanings of some of these verses, I want you to just notice the theme of the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoa, hallelujah! That's great. The wonder of the blessings that have come, and the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the dwelling in the eternal city. Oh, hallelujah! Absolutely wonderful. The judgment of God. The fierce anger and the wrath, the cry of the wicked, the wailing and the gnashing of teeth. Hallelujah! Does it, you know, 
We don't react so well to that, do we? Do you, do you realise that? Do you realise that these angels are actually exalting the name of God because he has finally come down in judgment? Now, though, to us, <coughs> and this is because Babylon's, you know, messed up our thinking a bit, soiled it a bit, the idea of rejoicing over someone else's downfall, the idea of rejoicing over judgment, it sort of feels a bit, you know, is it a bit unchristian? bit off you know we're much more comfortable with the idea of well love it's much more accommodating isn't it rather than judgment I mean you're here today don't you well, don't judge me Christians say that all the time especially if the word of God hits them oh don't judge me you mustn't judge me you see it's very bad we're non-judgmental people and we talk about God loving us yes forgiving us Yes, understanding us, oh yes, blessing us, definitely. Punishing, Ooh, God punishing, God judging. And yet here is a voice of heaven actually commanding that the people of God rejoice over the judgment that has fallen as well as over the fact of the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to get something clear here because there's a message here. We should always rejoice no, go again. We should, we will be rejoicing in that day because evil has been put to an end. You should be glad in your own heart when evil and evil men and evil powers are brought under the hand of God to nothingness, to no longer perpetrate their evil intentions or their evil work. You say... Praise God. See, that's the point of the souls of the martyrs under the altar. Back in chapter 6, they're saying to the Lord, crying out, O Lord, how long, how long, O Lord? How long will this evil be perpetrated and allowed to go on? The trouble is, you see, we're getting our balances a bit wrong here. We've got a, we overall, I think you and I have a very poor understanding of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Now you really read that in Romans, don't you? Sin by the commandment becomes exceeding sinful. Now think carefully about this. Don't, don't shrug off the seriousness of sin. See, we're not very good. We don't really love righteousness and hate, that's the word, lawlessness. You get, you get, unfortunately, because of the society we live in and because we are what we are, you know, we're getting to the point now where right and wrong is not clear. I remember once going to a funeral and they were, they were just giving the eulogy about the person and pointing out that this person had a very firm idea of right and a firm idea of wrong. And the consequence was they became intolerant. And I thought, oh dear, it must be me. Thankfully it wasn't in the coffin, but you know. <laughs> you know you've got to. I mean, what's happening is that there's a blurring between the lines of right and wrong, of righteousness and unrighteousness. Because, you see, we don't have absolutes. We live in a society that says there's no such thing as absolute truth, absolute right, absolute wrong. The only absolute that exists in society today is the absolute that there's no absolutes. All right? I mean, what is right? Well, what's right for you? You can do what's right for you. You're justified in doing what's right for you. That's, that's, a, that's the kind of question. It's wrong, well, it's wrong for you. Well, you don't do it, it's wrong for you. You see, it's all a matter of choices. And um, 
well, what's right 50 years ago, we're, we're used to it now, so it's not, not necessarily right. We don't have to talk like that. What's wrong 50 years ago? Well, we, we, we've learned to accept it and we've moved on, you know. It's all rather Victorian, this thinking in the past about standards and rules and morality and right and wrong. We're more fluid. We're educated. We live in a very educated world. We're very intelligent. Look at what we can create. Look at what we can do. So, you know, the whole thing is, well, it's fluid, you see. It's fluid. Even the laws, you get a thing that was against the law. Can think, I'm not going to go through details. You just put your brain into it. 50 years ago, those of us who were older when you were growing up, what was against the law that's permitted today? What is now what was legislated as wrong, get it, is now legislated as right. So the standards of morality, of justice, of right and wrong are fluid in their changing, you see. But just remember this. We may live in a changing world, but we've got an unchanging God. Society's moved on. God has stayed where he ever was. Because the thinking, godless thinking, has moved on down the sluice, down that terrible slope into corruption. God has stayed above in the holiness of his throne. He's an unchanging God. We live in the light of God's unchanging character and of his unchanging word. When God gave the Ten Commandments, he wrote them on tables of stone, not putty. Get it? They were permanent. They were fixed. When Moses broke the tables of stone, in his anger, and rightly so, he had to go back up and get another table lot of tables of stone. And when he got them down, you know the surprise he must have got when he read them? It said exactly the same thing. Get it? Oh, but God, you know, those people are weak. You know, they went and worshipped a calf. They didn't mean harm. It wasn't, you know, they were just led the wrong way and they weren't very strong in their faith, so we just better make a better provision on commandment, we'll say, number 11. You know? <laughs> Administer all these standards with a little bit of elastic in them. It's not like that. So this is why we have trouble struggling. We've got to get to the point where we understand that God has not changed and judgment comes on that which is wicked. See, there's, there is punishment, and it's very simple. Punishment because God... He's a God of justice, all right? A just God and a saviour. That's God. He's a just God. Justice. Do you know what justice means? It means equity. That's part of justice. He's a God of equity. <clears throat> you think of those um, scales of justice. You can buy them, can't you, with a lady in the middle and a pan on either side, Right? And when you've got justice is when the pan does what? It's balanced. That's equity. Equal. Got it? May I just add that in the old symbols of the angel with, um, with uh, the scales, she's got a sword. And she points it down like that on the Bible. Did you know that? The original one had a pointing on the Bible because that Bible gave the standards of God and justice. Okay, we've got to have equity here. So what we're, going to do, what we're creating today is a world that rewards good, you know? Rewards it. You send the children to school, oh, they're so good. <laughs> they went and did their exam and, oh, they did do well. Mind you, there was 50 people ahead of them, but they did well. They were at the bottom, but they still did well somehow or other. And you must give them all positive comments, you see. And you must give them all ticks. And you mustn't use any red. And you certainly don't put crosses. And you certainly go, don't go, Johnny, what's wrong with you? You know? 
You got seven out of ten. You're the kind of guy that could have got ten out of ten. That's a hopeless effort on your part. Oh, dreadful, dreadful. No, positive. We must be positive. Well, if good is going to be rewarded, and it should be, good should always be rewarded, and God always rewards good. He's a God of justice, but he will punish evil, you see. Otherwise, the scales are like that, aren't they? Good, evil. No, God is a God of justice, and he's a God of equity. And not more than that, so that therefore evil is punished just as much as good is rewarded. He's also the God who is righteous. These are the parts of the attributes of God. These are parts of the characteristics of the God who is on the throne. These are the guidelines, equity, justice and righteousness, which will guide the Lord Jesus in that day when he who is and would be the saviour of all mankind becomes the judge of all mankind. The saviour becomes the judge. The Father has given all things into the hands of the Son. And he will judge the world in the day to come, that all men might learn to honour the Son, even as they honour the Father. The Father doesn't judge or carry out the acts of judgment. He's given judgment to his Son, that the world may realise that he is the God of equity and righteousness and the God of justice and punishment and of love. And the man of Calvary will be the man of the throne who will not only bring in that reign of righteousness and peace and blessing and bliss, but will rid the entire universe of every form of sin and judge it with the power and mightiness of a God who is holy, who is just, who is absolutely righteous. You see, God has got a perfect right to be angry. Do you understand that you? there are times when you should be and I should be righteously angry? Now, careful when you get angry because you might sin, because you lose control. The Bible says, be ye angry and sin not. People don't tell me that that told me I shouldn't be angry. No, it didn't. It told you to watch yourself when you are angry and be a bit selective about what you're angry about. But when you see evil rising, you should be angry. When you see children corrupted, you should be angry. When you see evil perpetrated, you should be angry. When you see God's people getting persecuted, you should be angry. When you hear from the pulpit the word of God being twisted, misrepresented, watered down, God's voice made to speak something else, you should be angry. That's righteous anger. Now you think of God. Has he got a right to be angry? Number one, he sent his son into the world, didn't he? And they crucified him, didn't they? This is the heir, come let us kill him. An action of utter rejection, absolute hate and total evil. God then reversed what they did and raised him from the dead. And they would refuse, and they refuse today the evidence of the resurrection. He gave them his word. <clears throat> he gave them his word. And they will not even read it, let alone believe it. And if that wasn't enough, he declared for 2021, we'll add three on if you want to, but 2021 years, he has declared the glorious message of salvation and has called out to a sinful world the glorious message, the call of God to come to the wedding feast. A gospel of hope, of peace, of fulfillment, of true salvation, of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of 
A gospel that makes a man unclean and a sinner fit for the presence of God and to have a home in heaven's eternal city, the city of God, the city of gold, the pearly gates, the glorious streets and the wonderful throne and the presence of God. And he said, no, we don't want none of it. Not only will we reject it, we'll stamp on it. We'll grind it out of our thinking. We'll grind it out of society. God says, I'm angry. Evil must be stopped. It cannot go unpunished. Justice must be done. Thank God. Mine eyes shall never see the fire and the torment. When I rise to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment's throne. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Hallelujah. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Amen. Amen.